Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 85, Great Balls of Fire, on the discovery of a new form of carbon. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. Let's start with the idea of allotropes, different ways that elements can exist and still be those elements. We've mentioned some already. The oxygen molecule with two atoms, technically called dioxygen, but commonly called the oxygen molecule, the one we need to breathe to live. Another allotrope of oxygen is the ozone molecule with three atoms, or trioxygen, which is toxic but absorbs most of the dangerous ultraviolet radiation in the upper atmosphere, and so it, too, is necessary for life on Earth. There is tin, which we generally know of as a metal, or white tin, used for kitchen implements and old tin cans. But it has an allotrope I mentioned, which exists at cool and cold temperatures below 13 degrees Celsius, called gray tin or tin pest, as a semiconductor with no practical uses. The element phosphorus has two relatively common allotropes, white phosphorus, which is a crystal of four-atom phosphorus molecules, and red phosphorus, which is an amorphous solid of a random arrangement of phosphorus polymer molecules. Many other elements have allotropes, especially at different temperatures and pressures. But maybe the most famous pair of allotropes is of the element carbon, that is, the crystalline diamond, hardest of all minerals, and the soft mineral graphite that exists in flakes and layers which we can write with. Graphite itself is composed of hexagons of carbon atoms in an infinite flat array, with the layers loosely stacked on top of each other, making them easily shear off for writing on paper. These two allotropes were the only known forms of carbon for most of scientific history. Until the 1980s, and this episode will talk of a new allotrope. We turn to an English professor of chemistry at the University of Sussex, Harry Croto. His interest was in long-chain carbon molecules and molecules with double or triple bonds to sulfur, selenium, and phosphorus. He was doing microwave spectroscopy on these molecules, which, as you might remember, probes the rotational properties of these molecules. By 1975, he started collaborating with a colleague, David Walton, on molecules of carbon with long linear chains and doing microwave spectroscopy on them. This led to some studies with Canadian astronomers using radio telescopes and discovering that some of these carbon molecules exist both in interstellar space and in red giant stars. In fact, Croto thought that these carbon chains were synthesized in the red giants themselves. 
So in 1984, Croto was at a conference in Austin, Texas, and met a colleague and friend, Robert Curl, a professor of chemistry at Rice University in Houston, Texas. Curl mentioned his work with another Rice University professor by the name of Richard Smalley, who had a large apparatus on the third floor of the Space Science Building on campus. Croto accompanied Curl back to Rice and examined the equipment. Croto wanted to collaborate with Smalley and used the apparatus to test his red giant carbon hypothesis. The apparatus was a laser that fired at elements inside a steel vacuum chamber. The laser could create ultra-high temperatures like the temperature at a star's surface and vaporize the atoms, which would condense into molecules and clusters of molecules. In this way, Croto could simulate the conditions in a red giant star and see if he could get his long chains of carbon atoms. The clusters would be carried on a burst of gas in the chamber and cross paths with another laser that would blast the clusters and ionize the electrons off of them. Then the ionized clusters would go into a mass spectrometer and you can figure out the mass of the clusters and molecules and make some guesses as to what the molecules are. At the same time, Smalley was working with Curl on metal and semiconductor clusters and was busy. Smalley said no to Croto. And even worse, there were scientists at the Exxon Research Laboratory in northern New Jersey already doing something like this, who found that carbon clusters with over 40 atoms tended to have even numbers of atoms. But after some time, Smalley and Curl agreed to take on a collaboration with Croto, who came to America and arrived in Houston in late August 1985. Croto decided to come and participate rather than have someone else do the experiment in his absence. For the carbon in the apparatus, they chose cheap and available graphite in a disk shape, and the carrier gas was helium. Initial experiments started on September 1st and confirmed the presence of these hypothesized long-chain carbon molecules of Croto. But the graduate students also noted that there was one unusual mass peak in the mass spectrometer corresponding to a cluster of 60 carbon atoms. Such a large peak suggested a very stable molecule. The graduate students further experimented and noticed that, despite the excess even-numbered molecules as found by the Exxon team, C60 was really strong, unlike C58 and C62. What was this molecule? This question really piqued the interest of Croto, Smalley, and Curl. Among the suggestions was a cluster of graphite, that is, tiny segments of graphite stacked up. Another was maybe a sheet of graphite bent around into a sphere. But this latter idea geometrically didn't work. You simply cannot curve a sheet of hexagons into a ball. The three professors came up with slang names for this cluster, starting with the British slang wadge, meaning a handful of material. Smalley called it the mother wadge, while Croto called it the god wadge. Note that the cluster was solely made of carbon. 
Organic chemists would typically add hydrogens to any tetrahedral bonds sticking out of a molecule, but there were none here, and unpaired electron bonds are highly unstable, which ruled out a free radical. What this 60-carbon molecule really was remained a puzzle. Croto made a comment to Smalley one day that he constructed a dome to show positions of stars in the sky for his children, using hexagonal sections of paper interspersed with some pentagons. That evening and towards midnight, Smalley took Croto's idea and cut out of paper some hexagons and pentagons and taped them together to make a ball as a model of the carbon molecule. In fact, it was a polygon with 60 vertices and 32 faces. Each vertex where the hexagons and pentagons met corresponded to a carbon atom's position. There were 20 hexagons and 12 pentagons in the structure. It appeared to be stable, it satisfied the 60 atoms required, and used carbon, pentagons, and hexagons, the most stable of the bond angles between tetrahedral carbons. He brought his paper model into the office the next morning and tossed it onto the table for his colleagues to view, and then called Professor Bill Veach, head of the mathematics department, about the shape. Croto decided to call this molecule Buckminster Fullerene because it is reminiscent of Buckminster Fuller's geodesic architectural domes of earlier in the 20th century. If you have ever been to the Expo 67 World's Fair in Montreal, you've seen the towering geodesic dome designed by Fuller for the United States' pavilion. I should note that Fuller's domes are really based on triangles, not pentagons and hexagons, but the name stuck. The three chemists, along with their graduate students, published a paper in the prestigious scientific journal Nature in November 1985 under the title C60 Buckminster Fullerene, in which they noted that the proposed molecular structure has the same overall shape as what we in America call a soccer ball and the rest of the world calls a football. Technically, the geometric shape is a truncated icosahedron. Among the stabilizing features they noted about Buckminster Fullerene was that carbon with valence 4 works perfectly in this structure if you include single and double bonds, and that there are many resonance structures, like a benzene ring, but on a three-dimensional ball shape. We've talked about the importance of group theory and symmetry in molecules, and for molecular orbitals, so let's take a quick look at the soccer ball symmetry. With 12 pentagons, you can look down from above upon each of the pentagons and rotate the ball 72 degrees five times. With 20 hexagons, you can look down upon each of those hexagons and rotate the ball 120 degrees three times. The ball is symmetric, because a mirror image will reflect onto itself. Overall, the official mathematical symmetry of this shape is icosahedral. From this knowledge, chemists can work out the various vibrational modes of the cage-like structure and see if they match what spectroscopy shows. (laughs) 
Here, my personal chemical history intersects a bit with the episode. I was in England at the University of Nottingham doing postgraduate work on supersonic free jets of perylene using laser spectroscopy when Croto, Smalley, and Curl's paper appeared. I recall my two research advisors remarking on this new paper while I was there and questioning whether the experiments and results were real. Second, after my year in England was up in August 1986, I returned to America to commence my doctoral studies at none other than Rice University. I chose not to work with Professor Smalley, for the scuttlebutt was that he was a slave driver to his graduate students. So I chose to begin research in surface chemistry instead. Third, the professor I worked for set up a lab on the first floor of the Space Science Building, while Smalley's large apparatus was on the third floor. Fourth, I took some graduate-level classes at Rice as part of the requirements. One was a quantum mechanics class with none other than Professor Curl, and the other was a molecular spectroscopy class with Professor Smalley. I recall one of the standard problems Smalley had us solve was vibrational modes for the C60 molecule, assuming it was a soccer ball shape. Fifth, I befriended a visiting graduate student from the University of Sussex, and later in my graduate studies, in June of 1988, I took a visit back to England to see her, plus many other friends from my time in Nottingham. She took me to visit Croto in his office at the University of Sussex. So, now the trio of professors, Curl, Croto, and Smalley, had proposed this ball-shaped molecular structure for C60. Was it accurate? What was going on? For the next five years, overlapping while I was on the first floor doing research, the scientists tried to get evidence for this soccer ball form using a variety of spectroscopic techniques. In the late 1980s, the nickname for the molecule became buckyball. But spectroscopy was not direct enough for scientists to decide if that shape was correct, nor was there physically enough sample to collect to do, say, X-ray crystallography on it. But let's backtrack very slightly. German Wolfgang Kretschmer and American Donald Huffman were also researching matter in interstellar space, particularly dust particles, in the late 1970s and early 1980s. The duo were collaborators for some time on this project and first thought these particles were silicate, that is, containing silicon and oxygen. Yet Huffman, upon examining spectroscopic evidence, wondered if there was carbon-containing soot in these dust grains as well. So he visited Kretschmer in 1982, and they did experiments by heating up graphite cylinders in a vacuum chamber and studied the soot formed spectroscopically in the ultraviolet range. It turns out they had made C60 in their chamber, but didn't recognize it, except as undecipherable carbon junk. Then the trio at Rice University published their paper in 1985 on buckyball, 
and suddenly Huffman and Kretschmer realized what they'd missed. So Huffman and Kretschmer plowed full speed ahead on their own C60 research to try to characterize what this carbon cluster was in parallel with Croto, Smalley, and Curl. In May 1990, Kretschmer called Huffman with an idea that maybe all that vaporized graphite in their apparatus would contain significant amounts of C60 and that it might be soluble in another nonpolar liquid, benzene. By September 1990, German Wolfgang Kretschmer and American Donald Huffman were able to synthesize enough of the molecules, that is, gram amounts, as pure carbon using their graphite rod method to do X-ray analysis way more than a laser beam scheme in Texas. They showed that the soccer ball model was correct, plus the duo gave the world a way to synthesize carbon-60 in bulk for serious research. The names Croto, Curl, and Smalley became permanently associated with this new allotrope of carbon. By the early 1990s at Rice, while I was finishing up my PhD, rumors were rolling around the chemistry department that maybe the trio would win the Nobel Prize. Those rumors proved true in 1996. But C60 is not the only alternative allotrope for carbon. Another cluster that was recognized almost immediately in Smalley's apparatus was C70, which clearly could not be a soccer ball shape. But what? With Kretschmer and Huffman's synthetic scheme, which gave a 14% yield of these clusters out of the smoky vapor, and in a ratio of 85% C60, to 15% C70, large-scale analytical studies of C70 could also proceed. C70 has an ovoid shape rather than perfectly round. But this tells us more about these carbon clusters. It turns out that there are a host of carbon cluster molecules, including C72, C76, C84, and they are now all called fullerenes being in the same general family as the original and best-known Buckminster fullerene. Why the ene, E-N-E, ending? Because they are, in some ways, three-dimensional analogs of benzene, which has the famous resonance structure, and these molecules have no completely single bonds or double bonds, like benzene. IUPAC finally standardized the names about 2002. I should note here that the ball-shaped structure for carbon-60 wasn't actually invented by Croto, Smalley, and Curl in 1985. The round form was predicted as early as 1970 by the British scientist Robert Henson, who was working on graphite rods in nuclear reactors and radiation damage to them. Nearly simultaneously, Eiji Osawa, a computational chemist, also predicted the structure of C60 as a soccer ball. Soviet chemists Dmitry Bokhvar and E.A. Galperin did the same in 1973. But none of these scientists actually discovered 
real carbon clusters with this shape. Their predictions were purely theoretical. Our episode ends with the discovery of how to make large quantities of fullerenes in 1990, but research continued and continues to this day. I plan future episodes on the results of later research. And one final comment. All the research on interstellar dust and particles never led to a resolution of that original problem, what is interstellar dust made of? In our next episode, we hear about an odd but important system of chemical reactions that oscillate in time, in space, or in both. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast. Podcast.